Welcome to the QUT Institute for Future Environments podcast series. In this podcast, we're featuring the IFE Grand Challenge lecture delivered by Queensland University of Technology Vice-Chancellor, Professor Peter Coldrake. Entitled Going for the Higher Fruit, Universities Post-Peak Public Funding, Professor Coldrake's Grand Challenge lecture took place at the Kindler Theatre on QUT's Gardens Point campus in Brisbane on Friday, August 11, 2017. Introducing Professor Coldrake is the Executive Director of the Institute for Future Environments, Professor Bronwyn Harch. To stay up to date with IFE podcasts, please subscribe to our channel. You can also visit our website at www.qut.edu.au forward slash IFE or follow us on Twitter at IFE underscore QUT. We hope you enjoy this IFE Grand Challenge Lecture. Hi everyone, welcome to the Grand Challenge Lecture for today. I'm Bronwyn Harch, I'm the Executive Director of the Institute for Future Environments. So welcome to you, our audience, and I know we've got a double banger audience in two other locations, so a shout out to those in the forum behind us, and also to those that are live streaming in as well. I want to encourage you to join the conversation with us as well, with the Twitter handles that we've got up that's scrolling through as well at the moment. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on where QUT now stands, pay respect to their elders, past, present and emerging, and acknowledge the important role Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people play in the learning that goes on at QUT through both our teaching and research activities. Today's Grand Challenge Lecture is a special one for two reasons. Firstly, after the lecture and the Q&A session we'll have together, we'll be presenting the Siganto Foundation Medal, which is awarded annually to an outstanding early career engineering researcher. And we're fortunate enough to have not only the recipient of that award, but also the Siganto family with us as well. So a special welcome to the Siganto family and our medalist family. Secondly, today's lecture is special because our speaker is QUT's own Vice-Chancellor, Professor Peter Coldrake. Peter has been VC of QUT since April in 2003. Peter's contribution to QUT has been immense, and I'm sure most of you would know that. For example, the building we're now in, the Science and Engineering Precinct, and the Institute for Future Environments were both built under Peter's leadership over the past decade. But walk around our other campuses or talk to QUT staff and students and you'll discover the dozens of ways in which Peter has made a lasting positive contribution to the university and the community it serves. But Peter's impact on the higher ed sector extends far beyond his work at QUT. He's been a significant scholar, thought leader, policy shaper and administrator for many years. He's written several books and maybe there's a genesis of another one that's happening today. He's the past chair of several major higher ed bodies, both nationally and internationally, including Universities Australia and the Australian Technology Network and the governing board of the OECD's Higher Education Group. In 2011, Peter was made Officer of the Order of Australia for his services to higher education and earlier this year was recognised as the coolest title ever, a Queensland great, uh, by the Premier of Queensland. 
But underlying all Peter's work is a passionate belief in the transformative power of education and the importance of equitable access to education. If QUT is the university for the real world, then Peter is the ultimate academic and scholar for the real world. Over many years, he has shared and put into practice his ideas on higher ed policy and management with many of those in the audience and beyond as a leader at QUT and in so many forums beyond QUT. I doubt anyone in Australia is better placed for the talk that we're having today on going for the higher fruit, universities post-peak public funding. Please join with me in welcoming Peter Professor Coldrake. Thanks very much, Bronwyn. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Thanks very much for uh, coming. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners, uh, recognising the important uh, role that Indigenous people play to the life and the work um, of QUT and contribute to our community. I'd like to acknowledge Marie Saganta and your family who are here today and who will be participating um, uh, afterwards uh, in the event that Gordon will be um, oversighting. Uh, I'd just like to also say that this paper uh, will be, is underpinned by, sorry, this presentation is underpinned by a paper Lawrence and I uh, have written, uh, which will be published during the course of the afternoon on our website. Uh, and it does, in a, in a sense, provide a continuation of the story that we've told in the, working, in the work that we've done to date. Uh, the paper is co-authored because we wrote it together, um, even though uh, I'm the sole presenter. Uh, so I just alert you uh, to those matters. As has been uh, made clear by Bronwyn already, the topic of the paper relates to where we are as a sector in terms of the level of public funding that's available to us. Uh, and in this presentation, I'm going to be talking really about where we've got to over the last 10 years or so. I'd like to just reflect on what is worrying government about budgets generally and about higher education budgets in particular. I'd like to obviously canvas what's worrying us, and many of you will have your own ideas about what is worrying us as a sector. It's probably important to reflect for a moment on where we sit on the scale of priorities because we do have a tendency to think that we're the centre of the issues and attention should be given to us. And I'd like to um, conclude by uh, making some comments on our adjustment to realities uh, where we are and what we might do from here. To go back to uh, the beginning, we're all familiar with the term peak oil, uh, the point of maximum oil production. Well, I think there's just no doubt that we've passed the, the point of peak public funding. Uh, and it's a fair question to ask when that point might have been reached. Uh, it's easier to actually identify that on reflection than it might have been at the time, because as I remember 2012, I just completed a term as Chair of Universities Australia, in which there'd been a, a very large investment of public money over the preceding three years in the sector. Not that the sector was always gracious in its receipt of that and always wanted more. But the reason I think 2012 was a, was a point of uh, peak funding was that the demand-driven system, which sort of started in 2009 with, with the loosening of controls and, when, and then really got going, it was in full flight from 2012. Uh, new indexation arrangements were 
in place, and 2012 was also the year prior to the first cuts by the Labor government, um, the so-called Emerson cuts, which included efficiency dividends of just under $2 billion, some delay in research infrastructure uh, provisioning, and the performance funding issues being cut. Uh, it's a fair question as to why a government which had invested close to $6 billion in forward commitments to the sector would then make cuts to it, because the sector certainly reacted very sternly uh, when those cuts were implemented. Uh, they did so for three reasons. One were the, 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 generally, uh, the general budget issues uh, in the post-GFC circumstance. The second was the blowout in the demand-driven system, which had originally been estimated by government to only cost $491 million. And uh, by 2016, no, no, by 2012, it was projected to be $6 billion in its costs. And also, because it's an issue that's returned in more recent times, there was a need to fund Gonski. Those are the reasons that led the government at the time to cut back. It actually lost a lot of political capital uh, in the process, but we still look back on that period as a, as a, very, um, as a good period in terms of our sector. This just gives a bit of a picture of our sector over the period from 2001 to now, broadly speaking, at least 2015 in terms of reliable figures. So this, the, the period is divided between the period prior to the loosening of controls on student numbers, 2009, and 2009 to 15. You see the immense growth that occurred in the domestic arena from 2009 to 2015, uh, and of course I've already referred to the layouts and the other and the other matters there. So, putting it a different way, the system in that period grew by 36%. That was a major that was a major growth uh, and which had implications. But more to the point, that the policy that the policy importance of the period was that Australia moved to really international best practice in terms of effectively having a universal system of higher education, if a universal system of higher education is defined as about 40% of 25 to 34-year-olds having degrees. Now, there are one or two countries where the figure is higher than that. Uh, and why is 40% universal? Because that's the view of the proportion of people in the population who are likely to be able to be successful at university study. So, of course, what flows from that is the previous remarks I've made about the cost of the system. So the Emerson cuts um, moved through the system and were not welcomed, as I said. And, and there was a little calm at that point uh, because the government was in political trouble and Tony, leader, uh, Tony Abbott was the leader of the opposition and he did make uh, a commitment that there'd be no cuts in education and in a variety of other areas as well. He did it on a Western Sydney Oval and I think Paul Bugger probably reflects back and thinks it was probably the un most unwise press conference he ever did. But that's what um, politicians who are seeking political office do when elections are close and likely to be um, closely contested. Once Tony Abbott was Prime Minister, the government commissioned, uh, the they, they commissioned a National Commission on Audit, led by Tony Shepherd. And it put some very strong recommendations in place about control of public outlays generally, but including proposals for the university sector, which are actually more severe than those which were actually implemented by government uh, in the subsequent period. But 
In addition to government's own motivations to move in this area, the G08 universities very strongly endorsed the idea of deregulation uh, of the sector, and that's in fact what the government proposed in the 2014 budget. Interestingly so, in the 2014 budget changes, as we now know, and I won't go through them, were never passed. The same changes were put to Parliament again in 2015 were never passed. In 2016, the government abandoned the program altogether, but in 2017 has resuscitated that program in what we call uh, a lighter version. Uh, and we, we are now experiencing the effects of that and need to implement the effects of that. Most particularly, uh, instead of a 20% uh, reduction in grant that was proposed in deregulation with, of course, fee opportunities for universities, that was brought back to 7.5% uh, over, over four years with a recalibration of the government student contribution from government providing 58% uh, down to 54% with students, this is overall disciplines, to meet the remaining 46. Of course we've got efficiency dividends uh, in play which of course are the most familiar mechanism that governments use to skim, skim budgets and there have been changes made in, in, res in respect of the repayment of student loans. And I'm going to say a little bit about that because it's territory that a lot of people don't understand, but it's actually the loan account which probably most worries the government as it does its forward planning. And of course in the process of that students will be required if the package is approved and the package is not um, yet been endorsed by the Senate and it's uncertain at this stage whether it will be. So we'll, we'll just wait and see. So given that it's, it's um, clear from that that given the Emerson cuts and given what's happened since, even though the government's program hasn't been endorsed by the Senate, that we're actually living in a post-peak public, post public funding era. For the universities, how have they responded? I guess the universities have identified their own low-hanging fruit and the most common of the low-hanging fruit to be plucked, and I know I'm mixing metaphors here, um, have, been, have been really the rise of international student numbers and the hiring of more casual staff or non-permanent staff, uh, as well as uh, changes in respect of um, professional staff arrangements, not only in this university, uh, but elsewhere, and in the way the professional services of universities are run. For government, the low-hanging fruit has been the budget skimming um, that I've referred to via efficiency dividends and so on. It's now obvious, though, that both universities and governments have got to seek fruit that is placed at a higher point in the tree. For government, that means a total recalibration and reconsideration of its contribution of the level of public funding, and we've talked about that in terms of the 58-42 to 54-46 matter, and we see it in terms of government looking at the whole question of student debt. Interestingly enough, government has been less, much less interested in mechanisms around student debt than the British government has been and uh, that's, um, but it's likely to be an interest that we match more closely in the near future. For universities, now that we're actually beyond simply skimming budgets but looking more deeply, universities are having to embark on the sort of programs of change that we're embarking on at QUT, uh, affecting the professional staff in particular, and I acknowledge that that's, uh, that is a quite a tough process, and nor is it a process likely to have an easy or particular ending because we're just in a different world now, a world in which we'll be making continual and 
rapid adaptations to the circumstances as we go and in which we're required to fundamentally reconsider the sort of services we provide, matching those students to, matching those services to student needs and so on. So together with that, of course, universities have to focus on their future revenue streams. And that is going to be very challenging uh, and I'll come to the issue of international students um, shortly, but, but some of the revenue streams that may be available might need to be met by expertise that's not currently located in our academic staff. For example, uh, corporate education is going to be a great opportunity for QUT in the years ahead. I, I think that a lot of the corporate education that is done by this university will not be done by people who are currently on the academic staff because of the nature of corporate education. And that itself will have its challenges. Let me just go back a little now and let's talk a little bit about why government is so determined and so concerned to achieve um, savings. And then I'll introduce um, the slide that's just there. The, the first relates to the general state of the budget and I needn't talk about that any further. The second is that for better or for worse, universities look pretty attractive targets. We're shiny. We're, we're in a shiny place here. Institutions have, many of them, have, have had very significant capital uh, programs, physical capital programs, and, and of course, virtual infrastructure programs. Um, many universities have apparently good bottom lines. Universities in Australia are climbing the rankings ladders pretty consistently. And governments, I can assure you, take no notice of arguments that are put that uh, governments are underinvesting because a political response to that is, well, we're climbing the rankings, therefore we're very good value. We're doing much better with the public purse than in many other countries. And of course, there are the cheap shots that occur around Senate hearings associated with the level of remuneration of vice-chancellors. <laughs> in addition to universities looking shiny, I think we're attractive for other reasons. I, I think we're, we're attractive because of how we behave. We do, I do make as a serious point that we are quite reluctant to acknowledge government support, but we'll always be trenchant in our criticism when it's withdrawn. As a consequence of which, governments tend to think it doesn't much matter how they treat us because we'll react roughly similarly regardless of that. And as I said, that, came, that was very evident to me when I was chair of Universities Australia uh, and just after around the Emerson cuts. But I remember it was evident at Universities Australia when the government introduced uh, a new indexation formula, which was going to be fantastic for the sector, but in the transition year, it was going to be disadvantageous. And the vice chancellor seriously arguing that we should renegotiate the matter. If Treasury and Finance had half an opportunity to renegotiate the matter, they would have, and it wouldn't have been to our advantage. I think another cultural issue universities have is that we tend to catastrophize our issues. Um, we actually exaggerate how serious our problems were. And if you're dealing with political leaders, they're dealing with a range of issues in the community. And I can assure you that when they look at universities, they actually tend not to see people or a sector that is experiencing the sort of circumstances that many people in the community are. And added to that, we're seen as a quite self-absorbed group of people with our problems, ipso facto as it were, always being the most pressing and most important to address. And finally, I think, is that the benefits of education and research are very slow to be recognised. So uh, the investment that a country makes in education and research 
and the long-term contribution of that in terms of developing a knowledge economy is just that. It's long-term. Uh, and politicians who are dealing in three-year or perhaps four-year, but mostly three-year political cycles have difficulty recognising that. So let me just talk a bit about the concerns that governments have. And I've got a, couple, a few slides here. This one really talks about, this is quite a benign portrayal of the, the government contribution to teaching. There are two components there, of course, the direct grants are depicted in the light grey and the dark uh, component um, is the help costs. So the, uh, the cost of the help program is about $2.5 billion. What that depicts, and that's actually in the budget papers, is only the cost of running the program and the cost of exemptions like enabling courses. It actually doesn't include other things, and I'll come to that in the next slide. It doesn't take into account doubtful debt and interest rate subsidies, and they are a very, very big figure. Uh, it is worth, while noting that to date, there are something like 52 billion out there in help loans, and the government's own forecasts are that about 15 billion will never be repaid, and the interest subsidy is a couple of billion beyond that. These are very big figures when government looks at a sector and looks at low-hanging fruit or mid-hanging fruit. A less benign way to present all of that is to really look at the slow-burning effect of all of this and why governments do quietly remain interested in deregulation of the system. So this basically depicts the annual cost of, of the HELP program, the student loan program, and you can see the various components there. Going from bottom to top, the very bottom one, that is the cost of HELP from 2001, as it were, through to now. The, the next, the light grey above that, is the extent of vet fee help, which is a real issue for government. Above that is the flow on to help from the growth in the demand-driven system that's occurred since 2009, and the last bit can be taken off the table for now. But whichever way you look at it, there's been a growth of some 10 billion in help costs over 10 years. And it's the extrapolation of that forward which really concerns government. I put that not to be um, defensive of government's position, but so that we actually understand what is, what is driving government's thinking, both in the Department of Education and, of course, more generally uh, with the central agencies. So we can see pretty clearly uh, what's worrying government. So what's worrying the universities? The first thing that worries us is, of course, the budget skimming I've referred to already, uh, but there is a point at which skimming becomes quite substantial. A university like this is going to be impacted about $47 million over four years as a result of the, of, as a result of the changes that have been made, uh, and in addition to which this university, like other universities in the state, have to absorb the half cohort effect, the changes to the school year that are occurring in 2020. The second thing that is worrying us is that research grants in 2016 terms have, have gone nowhere uh, compared in real terms in, in 2016 adjusted prices compared to where they were 10 years ago. Now, there was some uh, real additional money uh, put into the system through the super science initiatives in those particular years. Um, but research grants are themselves stable. If you look at the components uh, of research funding, it's more dramatic. You'll see in that period the one good story is that 
as it were, is research training, which has kept climbing and fairly consistently so. But you can see equally clearly through the green, and I'll come and make some more comments about the NHMRC in a moment, that has been uh, a story with a downward trend at the end of it. Research support, block grants, JRE, SRE, SRE, sorry, SRE and um, the post-watch changes and so on, that's most definitely been a uh, downward story in the most recent periods. And ARC, I think we're quite familiar with the deteriorating, deteriorating pattern of support there. So in terms of what worries us, it's not surprising that the effect of grants uh, being reduced is to lower success rates, and that is the pattern of success rates. Uh, the pattern of success rates be, being now at, a, uh, at a, such a low level as to be quite demotivational on people who are um, in, the, in the system. The, the one good story around research, and medical researchers amongst you will be excited, no doubt, with this news, is what's happening with medical research and the way in which the Medical Research Fund is forecast to grow in the next five years. So it's, it's a very strong story for medical research. Uh, and that's, that depicts the uh, projected pattern over the next five years. The only thing that could go wrong there is if government were to raid that fund in the way government sometimes raid such funds. We were promised that the EF fund would never, the infrastructure fund would never be raided. Well, the EF fund is now off the books. Now, politically, there are a lot of things to protect medical research that aren't there to protect university infrastructure. And, and really, if you look at the condition of university buildings around, uh, around the place, if universities have been reasonably well managed, they shouldn't have uh, any, anywhere near the sort of research infrastructure challenges that they had a decade ago. But here's where the concern is. And some of you will be familiar with this already. If you look at era research income, it's probably, uh, and, and you just look at the national picture, you'd have to say from that, uh, and to obviously recognise that medical research is, is popular with politicians. They, a lot of them have short attention spans. They, they are attracted to white lab coats, people in white lab coats, and um, cures for serious illnesses. They um, are attentive to issues of obesity and ageing in the population. Uh, but really, they like, as the community likes, to see quick fixes, which can be presented in brief video grabs. Um, it's both a tremendous advantage for medical research, uh, but also something that can be misleading in terms of other things occurring. What I'm, what I'm really saying from that, and bearing in mind that our figures are much more distorted in favour of medical research than is the case in Germany and the UK, is that we've just got to be very careful that we, that we aren't at one-trick research pony as a country, a one-trick research pony. We don't want to have an innovation strategy that's not much more than a medical research strategy. And that's not being unkind to Alan Finkel, who's trying to actually deal with you know, a, a range of really big issues uh, across the board right now, uh, in particular energy policy. But what that does say is that we are reluctant as a, as a country, or the political support is reluctantly being provided to other slow burn, intractable, hugely important issues, whether they do relate to energy policy in particular, climate change in general, whether they relate to infrastructure, whether they relate to food uh, agility and sustainability, or whatever it happens to be, or indeed research that might keep society together, uh, which of course is a major community priority. 
So it does remain to be seen, uh, it also remains to be seen, I should say, in uh, discussing that, whether the Medical Research Fund will actually be as interested in preventative research as it is in some of the research that's traditionally supported. So I, I um, say that because I actually believe it, I'm worried about it, uh, and a lot of scholars, even in the medical research community, are concerned about it. I'd like to say something about where we fit uh, in terms of the federal minister's concern, and for that, read any federal minister's concerns. And it might follow, and to help you with that, I reproduce a cartoon that Lawrence and I had commissioned when we did Raising the Stakes, and it's a good cartoon, and the minister particularly liked it, as um, ministers always like these sort of cartoons, because it just reflected the exasperation that this minister, and that probably any minister, uh, quickly has. It goes to the point that because of the way universities behave, we, we always cosy up well with the opposition of the day. We do, we do rather less well with governments once they have been installed and once they themselves are dealing with their own realities. The first comment I'd just like to make is that we think in the education space it's mostly about us. But if you're a federal minister, it's actually mostly about schools. It's mostly about schools. What it should be about with a federal minister, just as much as schools, is the condition of VET and TAFE in this country. And the VET and TAFE situation is extremely complex, tends to be out of our minds. State and federal governments have been complicit in where the VET TAFE sector has got to over a long period of time. Both levels of government, both sides of politics have been complicit. There have also been, of course, and increasingly, a mix of public and private sector providers, including some quite dodgy providers, some of whom have left the system and which we read about periodically. There's been a lot of growth in the private, com in the pri in the private component here, but there's, but there's been a, an awful lot of cost shifting and cost cutting and, of course, the attempt to introduce uh, a private training market in all of that. It's true to say that VET TAFE is also suffering at the hands of the demand-driven system. We tend not to recognise that, but is undoubtedly suffering at, at the hands of the demand-driven system because of the natural crossover between notions of education and training and what some universities are doing, what other universities are doing. We can't deny that it's very obvious that that's the case. There may not be an easy answer to it, but we at least should recognise that the challenge that is there. The decision to extend uh, loans in, uh, to, uh, in the VET fee-help space has, I think, been an unwise decision. It was widely supported by a lot of people in the university sector, though we remained silent on the matter. But it's only likely to exaggerate some of the challenges ahead. And the real point I'm making is that we're talking about the education business. And governments shouldn't be, and we shouldn't be, working with governments to allow or to encourage incompatible policy directions between what's being proposed for VET and what's being proposed for universities. And people say, well, governments need to provide vision. Well, I think the vision needs to be provided by the players in the university and in the VET space as much as the universities, because we all contribute to the situation. And, and I think that we, we almost ignore in our sector the issues in the VET space. And smart universities in other places, including in the UK, are not ignoring those opportunities. 
because the workforce of the future will be one in which there will be higher and higher levels of skills. But many of those skills won't require university degrees, but the addressing of which might be very much assisted by important and powerful uh, alliances between the universities and great universities and the vet sector. I need to get that off my chest. I'd like to just finish by just talking about some of the new realities we're having to face. Um, the first comment I'm going to make relates to international student numbers, but more really, but more international, the reliance on international student income, particularly in business and commerce courses around the country. I hate to say it, but I think the reliance on that revenue has become a form of Kool-Aid because it's a very easy way to solve a budget issue. Now, I'm not being unsympathetic to the circumstances of some of the great research-intensive universities which are really grappling with these issues on a day-to-day -day basis. But I'm just saying that strategically for the country, an over-reliance on student, international student income might end in a bad place in terms of Australia's reputation to provide high-quality education, the, the quality of the student experience in Australian courses and so on. In this university, and it's, it's obviously the case, we are at the very conservative end of this spectrum and perhaps there's a case for QT to open that gate just a little more. But if the gate is opened a little more, let us encourage students in disciplines other than in business and commerce. Because it is a, an issue, I think, that in some of the great institutions in the country, you've got 35, 36% of total student load, which is international, and in business courses, it's between half and two-thirds of the students, not only international, but almost all Chinese. You tell me that that's not an issue that should be the subject of attention uh, and consideration by uh, academic boards and audit and risk committees. Second, uh, I, think we, I think we're well and truly on this journey, but universities got to, have just got to focus more and more on their costs. We are, even newer universities, can, can develop our own traditions very quickly uh, and quite often they're silo-based. Uh, I think that the story of Haikyuu at QUT is, is a good story in terms of demonstrating to ourselves that we can think uh, in a very fresh way about the way we uh, might provide services in the future, and we've done that in, in terms of really effective consultation of both students and among staff over a period of time, and I think we've, we've done that well. I'm sure we have to be even more selective in our research priorities. Perhaps that won't be quite as hard for QT because we don't have a medical school, not that most research is done, not, not that most medical research is done in medical schools. But I think we can probably have a more serious conversation about that given the mission of the institution than I think some institutions are readily capable of doing. And in the learning and teaching space, I think the underlying force of change is of course the profound impact of technology. And that's exciting and challenging. And I think we're, as an institution, we're capable of grappling with that and working with that. It's important for us to avoid fads, which come and go. People have always said, well, you know, what about MOOCs? Aren't MOOCs going to replace? I said, MOOC happens to be the current metaphor for profound change. It's profound change we're dealing with, not with what is occurring with MOOCs on a day-to-day -day basis. The next is the continuing reform of academic work. One of the first papers I wrote in the academic field was the reform of academic work, which I did in the 1990s. And I have a, a romanticised preference of, 
of academics who are both research and teaching-based academics and contribute equally importantly to their fields. But the data doesn't support that that's what most academics these days are. And I think that this is quite an issue industrially, uh, but I think we should, I think we've got to more spontaneously recognise where people are making their best con contributions and deal with that. It's why in enterprise bargaining contexts, I've always opposed uh, workload formulas across the university. I can't think of anything more absurd uh, because how can you possibly compare the circumstances of academic work in a laboratory-based discipline to creative industries or law or business or what it happens to be? A workload can only ever be considered within a school or discipline context. And I really always wonder, I can say this, I really always wonder why people ever would raise the issue of maximum workloads. We should remind ourselves we don't have set working hours. Uh, think of how many professions in the community have that enormous privilege. It gives us time for reflection and spontaneity and a flexibility that most would deeply welcome. But the, the path of reforming academic work is a very difficult path and I think it is a path that's got to be trodden uh, at a local level, not at an institutional level, if we're, really going to, if we're really going to make a difference. And finally, and perhaps most importantly of all, we've got to, in everything we do, focus on the future workforce. We talk about the graduate premium, and the graduate premium that QUT is usually attached to, of course, being what happens you know, in your life. Uh, a, graduate, a graduate from here uh, is likely to earn $1.5 million than a person who doesn't have a degree, and we all know that sort of stuff. But it's not about the, we, we say for our marketing purposes, and we believe that there are, there are, there's a huge advantage and expectation of students and their parents that they will have re relevant professional employment at the end of the degree, but it's the preparedness of change which is, which is the graduate premium, not the job at the end of the immediate degree. I'd like to stop there and thank you for, uh, for listening, and I'm happy to take questions, as is my way, on any topic except parking. <laughs>